This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi. And welcome to the final episode of Everything You Wanted to Know About Physics, a new kind of podcast from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. I'm Dan Bennett, the editor of the magazine, and over the last five episodes, you've heard Professor Jim Alcalilli and I talk about the building blocks of the universe, space and time, the quantum realm, energy, and the biggest mysteries in physics. Now, for a final goodbye, we're going to answer your questions sent to us via Twitter and via email. Now, this will be the last episode in this mini-series on physics, but we'll be back with more 30-minute guides to the most important ideas and discoveries in science and technology. So do make sure you subscribe and leave us a review to let us know what topics you want us to cover next. And finally, if you want your questions answered in a future episode, be sure to follow us on Twitter at ScienceFocus. So the first one, uh, this one's from Anil Sidhu, who got in touch with us via email. And he asked, how does the Higgs give things mass? How does the Higgs give things mass? Well, uh, more correctly, a physicist doesn't talk about the Higgs particle or the Higgs boson, but rather the Higgs field. Uh, one of the, the, way, the way that quantum mechanics developed after its initial sort of foundation in the 1920s, is that we, 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 it became what's called quantum field theory. So rather than talking about things as particles, even though that's a useful way of, of, of imagining, you know, particle collisions bumping into each other, it's a, a deeper way of thinking about the, the, the quantum realm is in terms of fields. Uh, so we know that uh, the photon is the particle of the electromagnetic field. It's, it's sort of a, a lump of energy of of the field a concentration of the field but actually it, more correctly all particles are sort of lumps of their own field uh, even the electron is is you know part of the electron field the quark is a is a is the particle manifestation of the quark field and so on which is rather counterintuitive but certainly with the higgs uh we, we should really be talking about the higgs field and you imagine the higgs field is like like a magnetic field, so it's a it's a it's a a region of influence spread through space, a cloud of Higginess. <laughs> I just made that up. That's probably not a very scientific term, but anyway, cloud of Higginess. Um, uh, and so, all other particles, as they move through the Higgs field, they 
interact with it in different ways. They feel its presence in different ways. In the same way that, you know, some metals uh, are mag- uh, feel a magnetic field and others don't, depending on, you know, their, their, their crystal structure. So the way the Higgs field gives particles mass is that some particles interact strongly with it. They see the Higgs field as, as more treacly, you know, viscous. So they aren't able to move through it so easily because they're interacting so strongly. And that stickiness that the Higgs field gives them manifests itself in a, in a greater mass. Other particles, lighter particles, don't interact so strongly with the Higgs field, so they can move through it more, more easily, like moving through water. Um, and so that weaker interaction with the Higgs field means they have less mass. Particles that are massless, like the photon, they don't feel the Higgs field. That's why they can move through it. They don't interact with it. That's why a photon, a particle of light, moves at the speed of light. So it's not the Higgs boson that gives particles mass. It's the Higgs field, depending on how strongly they they feel it as they move through it. Great. Perfect. Um, So this one is from Dom Condon, who I think was one of your uh, followers who jumped jumped on board with this. Um, He asked... Uh, well, here's what he said verbatim. Try as I might, I'm really struggling to understand how the universe can be 93 billion light years across, but only 13.8 billion years old. How can light have travelled so far in such a short time? This is a, 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 a popular question that comes up a lot. Yes, it, you, you would imagine that, you know, if... Uh, we say the universe is 13.8 billion years old. Um, the light from the most distant object is just arriving now. And it's, uh, you know, so it tells us how how long light has been traveling. Light has indeed been traveling for almost that time. And, you know, the, the oldest light is the cosmic microwave background. Um, so 13, so, so light from the most distant object we can see certainly has only been traveling for 13 something billion years and it has only been traveling at the speed of light the trick is that the object that emitted that light 13 plus billion years ago is is further away now than 13 billion light years because in that period in that intervening time that light has been traveling towards us space has been expanding has been stretching so light has been coming towards us, you know, as though, you know, climbing a descending escalator. (laughs) It's working against the expansion of space. And the space behind it that, you know, that it's it's travelled through is also expanding. So by the time the light reaches us 13 billion years after it was emitted, the object that emitted it is much further away. Hence the 90-something billion years that we say is the real size of the visible universe. I'm glad to hear you get that one a lot too. Uh, we we often uh, get questions about that in the magazine. Um, so we touched on this before. Um, uh, we see that light redshifts um, as it you know leaves distant galaxies and and, and arrives at us. Uh, and so this uh, Ian Edmund had this question, um, which essentially I think at his core he's asking. Um, when when photons leave that galaxy at a particular wavelength uh, and therefore energy, and then they ri- arrive here at a different one, and that 
process is what we call the redshift. Uh, not the process, but what, what we observe. Um, where does that energy go? Uh, or, or is this something that makes sense under one model or another, etc.? This is a really subtle question. Um, uh, and I suspect, you know, we're not going to get a full understanding until we have a proper theory of quantum gravity, uh, because in a sense, it does sort of um, come from different areas uh, of physics. So yes, it, it is true that uh, light traveling through expanding space is being stretched. The 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 uh, um, the, red, the Doppler redshift of of you know of space itself expanding, uh, and so light will have a longer wavelength when it arrives here than it did when it left. And the very first equation in quantum theory that uh, that uh, Max Planck um, gave us is that indeed the energy of light depends on its wavelength or its frequency. Uh, they're they're interchangeable. Um, so a, a longer wavelength uh, uh, lights correspond to lower frequency light and therefore lower energy. So certainly its energy is decreasing as it's traveling through empty space. However, we also know that energy should be conserved. Where is that energy going? It can't just disappear. And so the best guess, the, you know, the, the, the way to talk about this is that that energy has somehow been used partly in the process of the expansion of space. So it's stored within space itself. Um, now, what is driving the, the expansion of space? Well, it's, you know, initially it was the, the initial conditions of the Big Bang that, that uh, you know, caused it to, you know, when, when we talk about thing, ideas like inflation theory and so on, the initial driving conditions that pushes space apart. Uh, and now we also know that space is expanding due to dark energy. So in a sense, space doesn't need any helping hand from the stuff within it for extra energy. But nevertheless, that's where we would believe the 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 the, uh, the energy loss from the electromagnetic field from the from the photons traveling through space will have to be stored in the gravitational field in space itself, driving its expansion. So uh, we you know, the sums have to add up. That energy cannot be permanently lost from the universe it has to manifest itself somewhere and the only place it could be stored if the photons have lost it is in space itself that was that was definitely a tough one um i think uh we we definitely uh we're chatting that one through on the team and um, <laughs> thought it was quite a good question in in the end um so this this uh i, I can't say the uh twitter handle of the person who asked this question uh, <laughs> uh, you, you probably know who you are. Um, but they asked, if you pass beyond a black hole's event horizon, do some properties of space and time flip? You put an in quotes. And this this is something we get a lot, not specifically perhaps about spitting, uh, flipping, um, but what happens uh, past an event horizon? This is a, a, an interesting question. In fact, um, I remember first reading about some of this stuff in, in a fantastic uh, book by um, an American physicist, Kip Thorne, um, who's probably one of the leading experts on Einstein's general theory of relativity. Um, but those physicists who study black holes um, actually, you know, have to come across this a lot. And, it, and it's to do with 
uh, uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity and how gravity affects space-time. Um, the easiest way of explaining it is to say, yes, um, space and time do, in a sense, flip over. Um, when we when we teach physics to to physics students, we use um, diagrams called light cones, uh, which are essentially uh, um, sort of two 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 cones, one inverted and one not, and so their their apexes, their points are touching each other, and and the way those light cones uh, are angled tells you how space and time is changing and how it's flipping over, and once you get inside a black hole, things get very very weird. In a sense, the direction that you're traveling in from once you pass the event horizon towards the singularity in the middle, you would think of that as being a direction in space. You know, there's a singularity in the middle of this sphere. But these light cones flip right over so that that radial direction into the singularity becomes a direction in time, in a sense. And so... that's why it's inevitable when you fall into a black hole that you're going to hit the event horizon. Uh, you're going to hit the singularity, I mean, um, in the same way that it's inevitable that we're going to hit tomorrow. So tomorrow is our, in our future. We, we are going to get there. The singularity is in the future rather than in the middle of, of space. So, yeah, space and time get flipped over in a way that words really don't um, <laughs> really uh, express adequately. Uh, in in the sense that time and space axes do do interchange. Great, and I suppose that's exactly what you were talking about. At, in terms of you know, you can see all this, or at least theorize this, all through you know the beauty of math- mathematics. Um, so moving on to the next one um, from <laughs> a man named Bruce who had the Twitter handle ugly. Um, don't be don't be so hard on yourself, Bruce. Um, um, he asked about Hawking radiation. Uh, now, his specific question was, why don't antiparticles escape the event horizon, making the black hole bigger and the rest of the universe smaller? Uh, but I suspect it's probably good to just start off about um, you know what what Hawking radiation is and, and why it, it was of interest. So Hawking radiation, named after Stephen Hawking, who who, who first uh, um, discovered the effect, theoretically, we don't yet have um, the, the experimental confirmation of it. Uh, otherwise, Stephen Hawking would have won the Nobel, Nobel Prize for, for, for this discovery. Um, the idea is that particles, it, it, we know uh, in, in the quantum realm, down at the sub, subatomic scale, um, empty space isn't empty. It's, it's fizzing with activity. Particles are popping in and out of existence all the time. They're being created and annihilated. Those are the technical terms. Um, and particle, these particles are created in pairs. So you have a particle and its antiparticle partner. Both have mass, but they have uh, otherwise opposite properties. So the other properties cancel each other out. All that's left is their mass, which is what was produced from the energy that made them. Uh, likewise, a particle and antiparticle can annihilate each other. Their combined masses d- disappears in a puff of energy. It turns into energy via E equals mc squared. So quantum mechanics tells us that particles and antiparticles appear and disappear all the time, everywhere. 
Now, Stephen Hawking said, well, this must also be happening just on the edge of a black hole, just, just outside the event horizon. It can't, you know, if it happens, it'll happen inside the event horizon as well. But that's of no interest to us because nothing escapes the event horizon. And so whatever happens, happens. But just outside the event horizon, particles and antiparticles will be forming and disappearing all the time. They said if one of them were to fall into the black hole and the other escapes. So if the antiparticle falls in and the particle escapes, normally the particle and antiparticle will have to recombine again. If they're created out of nothing, if there was, wasn't the energy to create them in the first place, they can still be formed according to the rules of quantum mechanics, namely actually Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle can be can be stated in a different way to the, the normal way we talk about it, which is that you, you can't know where a particle is and how fast it's moving at the same time. You can also say particle or, or energy can be created out of nothing, provided it's not too much energy, or the more energy you want to create out of nothing, the quicker you have to give it back to nothing to balance the books. It's a bit like borrowing money from a, from a bank. But in this case, the bigger the overdraft you want, the faster you have to pay it back. And so the vacuum, empty space, can create particle-antiparticle pairs, but provided they disappear again, and that energy is given back to the vacuum very quickly. Now, if they are formed just outside of the event horizon of a black hole, and, and the antiparticle falls in and the particle manages not to fall in and escapes, then it doesn't have a partner to annihilate with. It can't give back the energy that it borrowed from nothingness. So what happens is the energy that it is left with, now that it can survive, it's like Pinocchio, it becomes a real live particle. That energy must have been given to it from the black hole. And what we say is the black hole then must shrink by a tiny amount uh, you know, its its gravitational field is slightly weaker because it's given energy to to form this particle permanently. Now, the question is, what if it was the other way around? What if the antiparticle is the one that escapes? Well, it's the same thing because antiparticles still have positive mass; they still have energy, and so if the antiparticle escapes, it will also have its its mass the energy that created its mass permanently given to it by the black hole. Of course, the antiparticle is likely to meet a normal matter particle because there's a lot more normal matter than antimatter, and they will annihilate. So it will annihilate with another particle, another partner, not, not the one, you know, it's cheated on its own partner because its own partner sort of disappeared into the black hole. But it can annihilate with a normal matter particle somewhere else, and, and suddenly you've got some, you know, real energy. That the, Again, that Part of that energy is what the black hole's given up. So, yes, the black hole will always shrink, regardless of whether it's the particle or the antiparticle that has, has escaped from uh, just outside the event horizon. Well done. That's a, <laughs> that's a real uh, humdinger. Um, okay, so uh, the next one is uh, from someone with the Twitter handle uh, Saad Ansari. Um, so... Their question is, can a fast-moving object survive diving into a black hole? And is there anything called a gentle singularity? Um, okay, well, no, f f fast-moving particles can't, nothing can escape 
a black hole if it passes through the event horizon. Doesn't matter how fast you're moving. In fact, you know, you 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 fall into the event horizon at the speed of light, and and uh, you know that's the fastest that can happen. You know, things beyond at the event horizon and beyond it get very very weird and very screwed. But you 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 can't avoid falling into the event horizon. Now there are different kinds of singularities for black holes. A singularity need not be a point. If a if a black hole is spinning then its singularity is what's called a, a Kerr singularity, K-E-R-R, New Zealand physicist who first um, um, developed the idea. And that singularity isn't a point, it's a donut, it's a ring. Um, so it's a different kind of singularity. But I suspect the, the gentleness uh, word in the question may be better suited to describing the event horizon, because you can have gentle event horizons and not so gentle event horizons. And that depends on the size of the black hole. So a normal, a normal black hole that was formed from the collapse of a, of a star, um, falling through that event horizon will not be a pleasant experience. A lot of people now know, this is, this is it all, almost in popular parlance, even when I give a talk to school kids, I say, what is the process that happens to you that stretches you when you fall into a black hole? And you always get kids shouting, spaghettification, because spaghettification is the correct term. You get stretched as you fall through an event horizon of, uh, of, uh, of an, um, a collapsed star because the gravitational potential is so different over just a short distance, the length of a human body. So if you fall in feet first your feet are pulled much more than your head. Uh, and, and I suspect that's not a pleasant experience, not that I've tried it or not that anyone has tried it. But a supermassive black hole, one that is, 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 uh, that we, we, we know now resides at the centre of all, in all galaxies, they are so big that their event horizon means a much gentler transition. As you fall through it, you, you probably won't even know the moment that you'd fallen through that event horizon until you wanted to turn around and come back again and you realise it's impossible. So there's, that would be a much gentler falling in, a much gentler event horizon than uh, that of a stellar black hole, the black hole of a collapsed star. Okay, brilliant. Um, and then uh, last one from the readers. Uh, although <laughs> I suspect this might be someone we both know. Um, from Jordan Colliver, um, and this is something. <laughs> this is something that's uh, actually quite popular in the building. This is one of the. This is one of the, the questions I get most commonly asked by colleagues, uh, and that is: Would it be possible to make a generator using strong magnets to propel a turbine, or would the positive and negative fields um, cancel each other out? Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Paradox, The Nine Greatest Enigmas in Physics. I don't remember what chapter it was in, but I, I talked about perpetual motion machines, um, which is a perennial sort of favourite of, of, uh, of pseudoscience. Uh, people wanting to generate energy from nothing or, or, you know, without having to worry about conservation laws. Um, the idea of generating a turbine from magnets alone is also an example of a perpetual motion machine, and it's impossible. The uh, the, the example I used in a book was uh, was uh, a, a, a spherical shell of magnets, all with their north poles 
pointing inwards and then having a magnet in the middle. And, and you know, th- there's an argument that suggests that maybe you can have it perpetually rotating, extracting energy from the magnetic fields of the magnets in the shell. No, you can't do that. Um, certainly, you know, people ask, you know, where does the force come from? You know, when a magnet pulls a, um, uh, a piece of metal towards it, a paperclip towards it, say, um, that, that's, that, that requires work done on, on the paperclip to move it. That work is energy. Where does that energy come from? Well, it comes from the magnetic field. So the magnet will be ever so slightly weaker. You know, if you, if you pile a, a, a million paperclips or a billion paperclips on, on one magnet, it loses its magnetization because, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's used up all its energy. But if you then remove those paperclips, you're having to apply work to pull them apart. So the energy you put into pulling them away gets fed back into the magnet. And so when you finally pull the last paperclip away, that magnet has retained its energy. So magnetic fields do have energy, but you can't use that energy permanently to, to drive a turbine. That's why turbines are based on um, electric magnets that, uh, you know, you, you have to transform between electric, electric uh, currents, magnetic fields and motion. Uh, uh, you can't get something from nothing. If you want to create electricity, you've got to put some some energy in from somewhere else and vice versa with a dynamo. If you want to get motion, you've got to put, uh, uh, sorry, if you want to get electricity, you've got to put motion in. If you want to uh, uh, get motion, you've got to put electricity in. So uh, the answer is no, there's no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. <laughs> Brilliant, thanks. Uh, and then... Uh... Yeah, we're we're coming up to our time, so uh, I'll give you two. You can choose between the last two. So these are just two from the team. So I thought I'd add add one, otherwise they'd uh, uh, tell me off. Um, which one do, would you prefer, dimensions or magnets? Well, I think I've probably covered the magnets one in the last answer. So let's have a go at the dimensions one. Okay. So now, and just a final parting one uh, from my team. If I didn't uh, address their questions, I think I'd, I'd be in trouble. Um, and so this one is another one, actually, along with the uh, perpetual motion machine that I get asked by, you know, people in different magazines uh, who work work with us. How many dimensions are there? Uh, when people talk, I mean, it's amazing when people talk about dimensions. It's, it's one of those terms that is banded about without any thought, uh, you know, so yeah, other dimensions, you know, where, you know, aliens must come from other dimensions or, or there may be other hidden dimensions. That's where ghosts reside or um, people don't understand enough about what it means to say a dimension. Now we know we live in, we are aware of our three dimensions of space. Uh, um, any solid object is three dimensional. We know what that means, just as we know that a picture uh, or something on on a screen or paper is two dimensional and a line is one dimensional but so we know our space is three dimensional einstein taught us that time has to be regarded as the fourth dimension and we talk about four dimensional space time um it was uh, one one of the uh, the the quests that physicists have been on for for for, for many years is to unify uh, the, the the forces of nature and something we, we talked about in a previous podcast. Um, and in the early part of the 20th century, it was uh, understood to, to uh, mathematical physicists, Kaluza and Klein, um, came up with the idea that you could unify, in a sense, sort of, 
both the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force. But the way to do that is to add a fifth dimension. And so in their mathematics, they showed that, you know, the four dimensions of space-time are, are, um, describe the gravitational field, but if you add a fifth dimension, then the electromagnetic force is a vibration in the fifth dimension. It, it's, a, it's a very powerful mathematical technique that has proven useful in other areas, but th- their particular theory didn't, didn't have the legs to last. It, it, it's, it's really sort of died, died a death. So the idea is that you can unify forces by adding extra dimensions. And of course, that has led in the latter part of the 20th century to a number of different theories, very highly mathematical ideas that show that there's ways of unifying the laws of physics, unifying the forces of nature by adding a number of other dimensions. So um, things like um, superstring theory and supergravity, these are ideas that suggest there are many more dimensions than the, the four that we are aware of. String theory suggests there are 10 dimensions. Uh, 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 where are the other six? Well, they're curled up very tiny. Um, we're not able to see them. You might say, oh, well, that's very convenient, isn't it? But the mathematics is very powerful and it is very beautiful. We don't yet know whether string theory is, 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 is the correct theory of reality, whether indeed these other six dimensions do really exist. Um, further development on string theory in the 90s, something called M-theory where the M, no one can agree on what the M stands for. It can stand for mother theory, magic theory, membrane theory. But M theory suggests there are 11 dimensions. Uh, It was, you know, you had to add another dimension to solve some of the problems in string theory. So the answer is no, we don't know how many dimensions there are, um, depending on which theory turns out to be the correct one. Um, and then there's all the ideas of, of uh, uh, you know, the, in cosmology of the multiverse, which again, something we touched on in, in a previous episode, um, which suggests that our universe isn't the only one. So we have our universe with our four dimensions of space time, but there may be other bubbled universes floating in a higher dimensional multiverse. Again, mathematically, these ideas work. Putting extra dimensions in uh, mathematically is very simple. It's, it's just algebra. You can have an infinite number of, di- of dimensions. In fact, in quantum theory, there's, there's, there's a, an abstract idea called Hilbert space in which you can have an infinite number of dimensions. So, so the maths is it, it, cheap to add dimensions. But connecting that to reality, we don't know. All we can say for sure is that we have four dimensions that we're aware of. Everything else is speculation, both speculation in, in, in theoretical physics, mathematical physics, but also speculation in, in popular science and science fiction. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to talk about higher dimensions. Okay, brilliant. Well, that's all of physics covered in about three hours, which is not bad going. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe for future episodes. Down the line, I hope we'll be covering topics like the brain, diet, black holes, and much, much more. And of course, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at Science Focus so that you can send us the questions you want answered. Thanks again for your support. And of course, if you want more guides to the big ideas in science and technology, head over to our website, sciencefocus.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. And if you want to dive deeper into any of the topics covered, 
than Professor Jim Al-Khalili's new book, The World According to Physics, published by Princeton University Press, is the perfect place to start. It's a concise introduction to the most important ideas in physics now. And Jim is a wonderfully clear writer who takes the grandest of ideas and makes them simple to understand. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. This podcast has been created by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. If you've enjoyed listening, why not try out our magazine? In the next few issues, we've got a special report coming up on the progress towards a coronavirus vaccine. We've got a piece by Steve Brusatte, one of the world's leading paleontologists, on the mammals that thrived among the dinosaurs. And we'll be taking a deep dive into the space mission that will fly a helicopter on Mars. So, if you don't want to miss out, we've got a couple of special offers for you. First off, if you're used to buying your magazines from the shops, you can get your next three issues delivered to your home without needing to set up a direct debit. And you'll still save on the shop price. Or, if you're happy to set up a direct debit, we can offer you even more savings. And your first six issues will be just $9.99. Pick up what works for you, by visiting www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash science focus spring podcast offer. That's www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash science focus spring podcast offer.